First of all, thank you for your time. No, thank you. And making the adjustment. Thank you. I have to ask you this. So we've talked before, and you talked about growing up in Delaware. Mm -hmm. uh, very humble beginnings. Yes. Did you now, humble is a is a highfalutin way for saying I was poor. Poor. How <laughs> poor were you? Extremely. I mean, we went days sometimes without electricity. We had a coal stove and couldn't afford coal. Um, there were times we didn't eat. Um, very, very poor. Seven kids. My single mother. Um, and she worked as hard as she possibly could and did everything she possibly could do, double shifts, triple shifts, to make sure we were okay. And that was very often the height of the okay. Wow. Yeah. So when you were living that life, did you ever imagine a life like what you've been blessed with? I cleaned houses um, in the mornings before school from the time I was 12 and I cleaned banks at night. <clears throat> and I would see these houses that were, I mean, they were nice houses. And I would say, well, one day I'm gonna have a house like this. Mm -hmm. And I would go to the library in between my after school job, well, well, school and the after school job because the bank didn't close until five or six at that time. And so there was all this time in between. And I would go do all of my homework and then I'm dating myself by saying I would go down to the basement to the microfilm and microfiche yes. and I would look at fashion and homes and things and I would just imagine what it could possibly be if I possibly could. And I think sometimes, you know, Einstein said imagination is higher than knowledge, which I'm sure he stole from Imhotep. But but that the ability to imagine bigger than what you see outside your window is the first step of planning. That is true. And that's probably the first step of what we, everybody talks about these vision boards now. And when we were yeah. young, that term wasn't there, but we knew to look yeah. for things we right. hoped for. Right, right. But you have really been on a tremendous ride. Now, while you were in school, you talked about, a, even though you worked hard, a teacher who didn't believe that you were college material. Yeah, I wasn't college material. I wasn't from the right family. I didn't have the right kind of grades. I didn't have the right kind of attitude because there was also abuse and alcoholism and all of these things. And so, go figure, I had an attitude. The bigger the insecurity, the bigger the attitude. Mm -hmm. And my attitude was big. But I had a teacher who inspired me. And I keep saying to people, for every one person telling you no, there's 10 people whispering yes. And we have to hear that yes and ignore that no, you know. So um, I, w I was telling someone earlier today that the Great Wall of China took them many years to build and it took a thousand years before somebody could breach it. And you know how they breached it? A general from the inside opened the gate. And so for that kind of negativity to get into me, I have to open the gate. I control the house of well-being. I control how far I can go. Now, to tell that to a young child who doesn't have or can't see any possibility, you need somebody who can believe in them. When I can't believe in myself, somebody's got to help me see that. And I had a teacher who was like, no, 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 you're destined for more. You're amazing. You can do this. You're a writer. You're a reader. You're I had a librarian who would always give me these books. And you keep reading. And that's the way out. And nobody in my family had been to college. I don't mean my siblings. I mean aunts, uncles, nobody. And so for me to dream about college, it was such a far off thing. I didn't even say it out loud. 
I was afraid to say it out loud. So when this teacher said to me, you know you could go to college, I, <laughs> that was it. And I was like, well, what else can I not do? If I can do this, anything's possible. I would sit in a classroom. I would always sit away from everybody. And people would say, why are you over there? Like, you can't see the other people with me. And I always felt like I'm taking my relatives with me. It wasn't that I was the smartest in the family. I was the first one with the opportunity. So when I went, they went with me. That's amazing. Yeah. But it also, it's interesting that you ended up going into sociology because yeah. that's kind of like that observation and that wanting to see yeah. is a part of that as well. So I, there was this um, job opportunity program in Wilmington for 15 and 16 year olds to take a job in an area of field that you thought you might want to be in. And I wanted to be a chemical engineer because, you know, the DuPonts, I think they put it in the drinking water. So I wanted to be a chemical engineer. I had a job working with a chemical engineer. I showed up. I had spent all night long braiding my hair in perfect cornrows. I had bought, used my cleaning money to buy this handkerchief linen top. I had my little skirt. I was ready. Secretary shows up, she looks at me and says, your hair is not professional, you needed to iron your blouse, you can't work here. And they were called secretaries back then. Mm -hmm. It wasn't her job or her responsibility. She was not who I was working for, but she was the gatekeeper. Right. And too often, and she looked like me, and too often the gatekeepers are telling our children no. Mm -hmm. So I went over the, I went back to the office that appointed the jobs. <clears throat> And they said, all the jobs are gone except a job at the food stamp office. Well, I don't want no job at no food stamp office. And in the food stamp office, you're going to be a file clerk. Well, I don't want to be no file clerk in no food stamp office. But that's the only one of these jobs left. So I have to walk because I've used my bus pass. i got to walk across town. I walk over to the food stamp office. I walk in. This woman's like, oh, my God, your hair is beautiful. I did it myself. She shows me around. My confidence is doing this. She shows me around, my job is to file these things. But I'm looking and I'm noticing some inconsistencies. These people should have been approved, they weren't. These people should have been approved because I happen to know all these people actually live in the same house and they put down two, <laughs> two different addresses. So I'm doing all this and they catch me one day reading files that I'm supposed to be putting away. I said, what are you doing? And I told them, I said, well, I noticed this and I noticed this. The woman just stared at me. And she said, I'm a social worker. I put a Band-Aid on the problem. You're a sociologist. You're going to find out the cause of the problem. So the blessing of not getting what I wanted was accepting whatever was left and saying, dedicating myself to working harder. Now, I didn't clean since I was 12. So how hard could filing some stuff be? So realizing that that was also an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I would be in an office, not cleaning. Right. And here it was the thing that set me up to be the sociologist that I really would have been if no one ever gave me that title. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. Now, not only did you go to college yeah. with the help of this, this teacher helping with the teacher yeah, scholarships leading the way. Counselor fills out an application to Jacksonville University. I didn't fill out the application. I filled out applications to any school my friend was going to. Where you going? Okay, I just copied that thing, put it. She fills it out, takes all my information, fills it out to JU, and they called and said, we've decided to accept you. You don't have enough money to go here. How can you pay? 
I was like, I didn't apply. But I didn't say that because right. I wasn't the polished woman you see before you today. <laughs> I was like, you want me here, you better find me some money. <laughs> <laughs> she takes the application over to the financial aid director who says, we just got a call from a millionaire benefactor who only wants to support a kid like this. And until you walked in here, we didn't have one. That's why I say when you walk with purpose, you collide with destiny. You don't know when it is, how it is, how it's going to show up. You have to be prepared. Oh, my gosh. And boy, were you. And you did not take your foot off the gas. No. Because who gets a Ph.D. at 26? <laughs> I was upset because I wanted it at 25. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. So you... You just kicked butt and took names when you, when you got there. You, there was no option. It was poverty or a Ph.D. Okay. And, and there, was, there was nothing in between. My family didn't understand. They were like, I thought you already graduated. What's this graduate school? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the, the goal was to do what I set out to do. Well, you did it. Yeah. Well, when you, and also now we have to talk about your dissertation. Yeah. Because you talking about colorism amongst mm -hmm. black people. Yes. Was unheard of. It was it was what, I did the first study. Around that the, the year that was, do you remember? No, 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 I don't mind. It was uh it would have been eighty five. Okay. Um so I was the first putty person to do a study on colorism. I actually named it. I used the term from Alice Walker's book. In search of our mother's garden. Um, there was no term for it. There was no theory. I had to write the theory. Um, I knew that if you could understand discrimination within the group, you could understand it better across the group and you can find ways to dismantle it. But I grew up in a family. My grandmother had passed for a long while. And so there's every range of color. Um, the study showed that the people who were very light or very dark received the same amount of discrimination for two different reasons. And um, so a lot of times when you see um, documentaries, books, whatever, they're citing my work. And, and even there, it was, there were lawsuits based on my dissertation. Um, this year, uh, you know, and it, they'll cite me, but they don't involve me in the conversation. Mm -hmm. But this year, during the pandemic, or not this year, last year, mm -hmm. what year is it? I got a call from a woman from Pakistan saying we're having a summit nationally, including India, on colorism. Can you just encourage people? I said, have you read my dissertation? She's like, no, I just, I just heard you and you were so encouraging. I said, no, that's my work. And she was like, what? So after the summit, you know, I finished and it was via Zoom. And, you know, there's silence. And I'm like, hello, is anybody there? And they're like, we're all here. We're just crying. We can't. So the next day, Fair and Lovely is still in operation there. They took mm -hmm. Fair out of their title. The government started creating microloans for dark girls to create crafts and businesses and things. And change is happening. And it, for, for, for it to happen there in that way and for me to be able to participate in that and to share the work that I'd done that many years ago was incredible. And it's incredible too that now here we are 2022 and we're still dealing with the same issues. Same issues, only worse. Mm -hmm. Only worse. Um, you know, back then I had to do this from a, a triangulation, which is to approach something at many, from many directions, right? Um, I, so I did a study. I had to do some, some uh, 
some work to determine how we code, how we color. And, and you know, the, my professors didn't understand it. They didn't understand, well, how do you, how's everybody gonna know? Are you using the same measure? Do you need to get paint chips? I'm like, no, people know what color they are. There's 144 words for black. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. it's, like, it's like, what? So we sat all these people around in the room in this experiment, and we had them rank each other. And even when they were wrong, it was consistent. Men were ranked lighter than someone the same color if they were a woman. If you had thicker hair, kinkier hair, you were ranked darker even if you were lighter. If you had wider features, more African features, you were ranked darker even if you were lighter. It was amazing to watch how deep it was. But then I had to go into content analysis and look at what was done in magazines and how it was done. And I had to look at where bleaching cream came from and why it came. And it was invented out of the tanneries where black folks were working tanning leather, mm -hmm. right? Um, hydroquinonine was used and their skin was turning lighter up to their elbows. So they were, people were like, ooh, your skin looks good here. And it, like, what is that that we would do that to ourselves, right? So hydroquinonine was then, we can create something. And I, I can't say his name right now, but the man who at the time was the president of NAACP said, well, if the darker blacks could use this, we could end the race problem. What? Wait a minute, what? Yes! So then they start, and it's hydroquinonine. So we're putting this stuff on our faces. And if you look in certain African countries right now, bleaching cream is a huge thing. It's a huge thing in India. It's a huge thing in Pakistan. It's a huge thing in Brazil. In America, we call it toners. We're just toning our skin. We're just toning ourselves away. And, it, you know, that we would do this to ourselves to be more accepted. There are only eight states in the United States where you cannot be fired for wearing natural hair at work. That is true. So the Crown Act um, is, is happening now and people are working very hard. I'm working with a company, two com well, Salon Centric is a division of L'Oreal and I'm working with L'Oreal and they're doing everything that they can to bring textured hair to the elevated level that it should mm -hmm. be, that this is the way it grows. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a whole nother life going on here. Isn't that something, though? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. I had never heard, you had never told me about the, how it all came about. And, I mean, yeah. This, thing is, this stuff is toxic and all, and we're just like. Mm. Well, so are perms. That's true, too. There's lye, and the no-lye relaxer has extra estrogen, and we don't understand don't why. That. I was years ago, I was at a, an event for these um, chemical engineers, and they were talking about the high rates of, of um, <clears throat> breast cancer among black women. And I said, well, has anyone looked at relaxers? And they were all looking around going, what, relax, what? I said, yeah, they have estrogen in them. Why would you put estrogen along with these chemicals? So then there, there was no study at the time. And then they launched a study and they found that there's definitely a correlation. And we're now perming girls' hair from the time they're four and three. And that long-term pro prolong. And I think all of our hair is beautiful. However we do it, however we wear it, it's all beautiful. But we've got to find ways that are healthy and safe for us and find ways to embrace who you are, all of it, every last bit of it. Amen. Um, well, we'll talk about that later on. Okay, <laughs> let's just move on. So let me tell you, so, so you got, did you get a job as a, where? I, 
taught at Kent State. Okay. Um, and then I, I, somebody talked me into doing stand-up comedy. And I had won a Fulbright two years in a row to study in Nigeria, and they had a coup. Who to expect this at the time? They were having coups left and right. So I couldn't go, and I was a little bit down. It's the closest I've come to being depressed. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm wired differently. Right. Um, so for me, the glass is not half empty, it's not half full. It's full, you just can't see the other molecules. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, That's what has air. Yeah, exactly. So it's just the way I'm wired. Um, and so, but it really brought me down. And I had a colleague who said, you should, you're so funny, you should do stand-up. And I was like, Ugh. So I went to this club, and at the time, amateurs were professionals who needed the $50. Mm -hmm. Steve Harvey, Drew Carey, Jeff Foxworthy, all of them were at this club, and I won. And Did you perform the same night as them? Yeah. But they were, you know, they were seasoned, and they shouldn't have won because they were yeah, seasoned. Yeah. So somebody recognized she's the real right. amateur here. Right. So, but they became mentors, and they would tell me where to work, where not to work, who to work with, who not to work with. Don't let anybody try to pay you on drugs. <laughs> you know, like, crazy things like that. Yes. So, and I did stand-up, and I would do stand-up um, at colleges. And then one day someone said, can you also lecture? Because your stand-up is so intelligent. And I was like, well, I'm a professor, so yeah, I mean, okay. I can, I can, I can lecture. So I would do stand-up at night and do a lecture in the afternoon, and it was marvelous, right? Then, you know, I became popular, and I started doing clubs. I didn't really care for doing clubs so much. So I said, I, you know, all this travel, and, and I'm driving all over the place by myself and doing all this. So I hired... Um, uh, an agent and I hired a publicist and I said get me a TV job <laughs> like I knew what I was doing yes. get, get me a TV job three months later I had I went into six meetings I got six offers to do however I wanted to do it wherever I wanted to do and I wanted to the purpose for using comp doing comedy was to combat racism sexism all the isms self-hatred um, and the purpose for doing the talk show was the same thing. So the purpose is always the same. It's just how you do it. Mm -hmm. So you were offered, was, the, was your talk show the first TV gig you got? Yeah. What? Yeah. Now I know of course it started as a local talk show. No, it was syndicated. It was the most syndicated show, the fastest syndication in the nation. Okay. Ever. It was fast, fast, fast. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, though, Miss. <laughs> well, thank you, <laughs> but I'll take it. <laughs> and you, what's so amazing about your show <clears throat> is that you had a highly successful show, mm -hmm. ratings, people loved you, you mm -hmm. were making good money, and then you had came to a crossroads. You were at a crossroads. They yeah, were they were highest rated show to be canceled. Um, they did a they did a pot a. a you know, like a research group thing with some women. And, and they had two groups, a, a mixed group of women, mm -hmm. and that one went really well. And then they get, did a group with black women and black women. I had long dreadlocks. And I was the first person on television with dreadlocks. Mm -hmm. Whoopi wasn't around yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and nobody was on daytime television with dreadlocks. And these black women said, we hate her hair. We don't know why she has to come out of the house like that. Why can't she fix it? I mean, they said some horrible things. And it were black women. And so the executives came to me and in not a nice way, 
said, um, you need to cut off your hair and wear a wig so you can look normal. And if you do, we will give you a million dollar signing bonus and renew the show for three years. And I said, well, let me think about it. <laughs> and I was like, deep. They're willing to, and a million dollars in the 90s was a million dollars. And they're willing to give me this much money for me to not be myself. It should be worth more to me to be myself. My family hated my hair. But they heard this and they were like, oh, we don't die. We multiply. <laughs> <laughs> they all locked up. <laughs> and they're like, nah, you don't need that. You don't need that. Naked you came in the world. Naked you shall return. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> so unity right so you know you don't die you just you you move on you do what needs to be done and you keep working but and and there was some other really nasty stuff that happened in that that I don't talk about and I didn't talk about it then because I knew some other people were coming up mm -hmm. and I didn't want to hurt anybody's right opportunity right. right but that holding stuff in to protect somebody else's nasty behavior is enough mm -hmm. and you know I'm 61 so I you mess with me I ain't protecting you no more <laughs> so okay so now you're walking away from this opportunity of a lifetime most people would say mm, yeah maybe maybe and, and, and where did you land I landed anywhere wherever wanted anywhere I wanted to go you know um, I still had that PhD mm -hmm. <laughs> and you know they were and what a relevant they were shocked that I said no mm -hmm. They, they, they weren't prepared. They no, they weren't prepared for it. But they were trying to save face as well. So um, then I started doing USA Live, which was a four-hour interstitial show. I was the show that brought back all the courtroom shows and all those things. And we would put, play those, and I would do the wraparounds in between and around um, from New York. And I was flying back and forth from San Diego to New York every week because at this time I had adopted my sister's kids. Mm -hmm. So I had five adopted children, and I was trying to do all of that. And I thought, okay, I need to focus on them. I need to be home more. And so after I did that I, I I still traveled a lot but I was in control of I would fly out and fly right back mm -hmm. um, so I work with top corporations and C-suites and leadership all over the world um, consulting and helping them to frame and change and see their way to a better world mm -hmm. You, you've never had any grass to grow under your feet, as old people say. No, no. So, <laughs> yeah, I, get, I feel guilty when I go to sleep. <laughs> well, no wonder, in the middle of all that, you started write, you're writing books, too, and yeah. New York Times bestsellers. Yeah, I've published, under my name, 11 books. Um, I've ghostwritten 30. I have a new book coming out this year called Black World. It's about a corner in heaven where the Igbo, Igbo landings is the beginning of the book. And when the Igbos walked over, they went into heaven and implored God to give us a place where we could find respite. So the living and the dead can go and you can sit down and talk and create and meet with anybody. Mm -hmm. The living and the dead. Philando Castile is there and he's created oh, wow. a food pyramid for every person because every person's food pyramid is completely different. You can't leave with anything that's not your own creation because too much has been stolen from us. Wow. So it's it's a it's a it's it it's a hist it's a history lesson, 
huge, covers huge history um, and people we wouldn't think of, people's names we wouldn't know. Mm -hmm. So it's history, but it's the present and it's the future. Wow. And I'm real happy about that book. But I love that, and that's going to be amazing, especially in the times that we're in. One thing I wanted to ask you about, though, is so many people would hear your story and just hear money, 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 money. But what's the blessing in you is that you have always taken care of community wherever you were. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you, you know, you, I didn't get here on my own, and I don't, I'm not going to be here on my own. So I support kids in college, I support kids who age out of the foster system, I support a whole bunch of things I'm not going to name because I don't need anybody else calling me. I've been thinking about this degree, I promise, I heard you could help me. Yeah, so, so, and then, you know, I have a huge family because family is not defined by me, by biology. So, you know, however and whatever and wherever, and <laughs> I would like to keep something that's my own, but I'm only here to manage it. Right, right. Yeah. That is beautiful. So tell me, how does that, you know, when you think about that little girl who was growing up in, in Delaware with this big family. On an alley. It wasn't even a street. Let me tell you a funny story, though. So there was this all-black swimming pool where every black kid learned to swim. Joe Biden was the white lifeguard. I'm not even kidding you. What? Joe Biden was the lifeguard at the all-black swimming pool. <laughs> and he taught my brothers to swim. He was gone by the time I was learning to swim. Well, yeah, he was gone by the time. Wow. But I will tell you another Joe Biden story. My sister Myrna was a brilliant artist, amazing artist, and she was diabetic. And at the time, people didn't know a lot of, about diabetes. But she'd have great days and horrible days. She was trying to get disability and couldn't get it. She had been trying for years. And I was in college. I was getting straight A's. But I had to work. And I was picking fruit, cleaning houses, braiding hair, anything I could do to send money home to help. So I wrote to our junior senator, Joe Biden, and said, can you help my sister get her disability? Because I'm getting all these great grades, I'm doing all this, but it's hard when I gotta go pick fruit yeah, and then yes. get, a, get an A. And he called me every day for two weeks until he got me, because there were no cell phones, right. you know. He called every day for two weeks, and the joke was like, your boyfriend called? <laughs> he was like, that's a senator, that's not my boyfriend. <laughs> So I get on the phone and he says, I'm proud of you. I'm proud you're, you're breaking the cycles of poverty, but you're not going to make it having to take care of there and home. But I'll make you a deal. If you take care of your grades, continue to do that, I will take care of your sister. And the next day, they hand delivered a check retroactive of the two years she had been applying. Oh, my God. My sister passed away right when I finished everything. She didn't get to see the show. She didn't get to see any of that. But she saw me go through school. And instead of me sending money home, she was able to send me money for laundry or for things mm -hmm. like that. I will never forget that. I will never be able to move into a space where that is not important. And that's the kind of person that he was for all of us in Delaware. I mean, everybody's got a Joe story, mm -hmm. you know. Um, my mother called her, her, called him her son because he was hands-on. Um, and and to, to see that and to know that and to live that, um, 
it's it's an amazing time we're in and I think so many people look at what isn't that they can't see what is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I think our whole society has changed so much where I can I'm, I'm in your age group and I'm old enough to remember when something like that happened it was huge it wasn't then talking about well why didn't you do this this and this so it's almost like we can't even accept what <laughs> What's being given? Listen, they don't listen. give you anything for free. Listen, <laughs> we keep doing this whole thing of, but what about? What about? What about? And really, it starts with this lack within our own self. And if I can't be enough for me, I'm gonna pick on you. If somebody would walk up to my mother and pick some lint off of her, my mother would jump down to the ground, find the lint, and put it back on. She said, "How you know I didn't want that?" <laughs> And then she said, baby, stop picking on everything. Because when you do, you showing us that you know you need to pick on yourself. That you can't stand to see what's within you. So you pick on everybody else. So, you know, when I see it, I feel it. And, I, and it hurts my heart. Because it's like, how? Sometimes I leave some stuff on me when I, I make all of my clothes. And there are people who come up looking for strings. They'll be looking. I know they're looking for. So I said, let me just leave some strings out here to help them out a little bit. Because clearly, they got some kind of thing that they can't work out. We have to work out this stuff within ourselves, within our homes, within our community. And then we can see what's really going on. You know, you see the world the way you see yourself. That's true. If everything I see is, we ain't never going to make it. <laughs> it's ugly out here. <laughs> Tell them on yourself. Right. Right. So we have to th rethink mm -hmm. the way we see ourselves. Mm -hmm. Amen. Well, I know one thing that... Um, was, you know, you've done so much since you've been here involved with the homeless and also with kids and anything you can put your hands on. You have been yeah. trying to, to fertilize and, and, and feed and serve. But I think we were all just blown away with when this pandemic happened. Yeah. And then here you and your family just jumped into action like a, 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 a unit from the military. Yeah. And you yeah. all just gave away Tens of thousands of masks. Yeah, we actually had a military nurse. Oh, <laughs> my niece. <laughs> the military nurse. And she was like, mm -mm, we, this is not recorded. This is not. And then Fatima was in here, all right, it's three o'clock. <laughs> it's time to cut out. What happened was all of my work was canceled. Starting in February, I could see mm -hmm. this is canceled, this is canceled. And you can either spiral into what us going to do or what are, what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. And so I asked myself and I asked the family to ask themselves, what do you know extremely well and what does your community need? And before they announced a mask shortage, I had printed fabric for Seattle Children's Hospital. I had just left Seattle Children's Hospital in January mm -hmm. and it hit out there first. So I said, I'm going to make masks for them to cover their N95s so that when they're out in public, people will see and recognize them as Seattle children mm -hmm. and give way and just and support yes, them and yes. whatever. So I started for that reason. I posted a picture of it and a friend who's a surgeon was like, girl, can you get me a hundred of them masks? <laughs> and I was like, what, what do you want these for? She's like, there's a shortage. Don't tell nobody. I was like, what? So that's when I called everybody in the action. 
kids and all. And they were like, I don't know how to sew. I'm like, you can cut. Get the cut. <laughs> Somebody's on elastic. This whole place looked like crazy because there was so much work going on. And I say 30,000 because I can't say 50. My niece was like, you weren't on logistics. I was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she was on, in charge of logistics. So we knew what was coming. We knew before it happened that everybody was going to need to wear a mask. We were wearing masks before everybody else was. We still wear a mask everywhere. We're going to continue to do so. I used all of the designer high quality fabric. One day I was, <laughs> we, we knew Emmaus House was shutting down. And so we said, we got to get masks for everybody mm -hmm. because we don't know if people are going to be fined for not having a mask or what. And I want them to be in the best mask so that they don't look like they just some something. Right, right. So, and we've been making coats for the homeless as well. So I used the best fabric I had, made masks for him. One day I was downtown, I saw this man in my, one of the masks, and I was wearing the dress that matched the mask that he had on. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I was like. <laughs> but yeah. That's your brother right there. That's my brother. But tell me, how, just, just to see your family come together like that and, in this time when really we really didn't know if any of us were going to be here right now. We We've worked, all lost so many people. We worked 10 hours a day. Mm. And we would wake up, and every morning we'd wake up, and there were requests from everywhere. And so my niece would go through and say, we need to get this many done. Can we do it? And we'd go, yeah. Mm -hmm. And we'd pray the prayer of St. Francis, and we'd just get to work. I mean, you put your own life on the line to be the first person to, to volunteer for the vaccine. Everybody could do something. We're in the pandemic now. People are acting like we're not. They're whipping off masks like a bra that's too tight. <laughs> and, and then, I'm out of here. I'm vaccinated. Get my girdle, too. <laughs> They're like, no. We're not out of this. And all we said was, what is it that I know? I learned to sew four years ago from a head injury. So I knew that. I knew how to inspire hope. I started recording stories to five people, and then they went viral. You just give whatever you have. Whatever you know, somebody needs it. Whatever you have and you're looking at it like, that ain't nothing. <laughs> Somebody is somewhere wishing for that. So we just, we just went into action. And, you know, nobody was sad over here. Nobody was distressed. Um, suddenly, all the work that was gone, companies were calling saying, do you think you can work virtually? I was like, well, yes, I can. <laughs> well, matter of fact. We're going to do that. <laughs> and I would be in the same room. It'd be filled up with packages and everything. But all they could see was this one little space of me recording from here. <laughs> and it's like, that, let's go. Yeah. And it's happening again. That's true. Well, now tell me this. You have lived and are living an incredible life. Yeah. Um, all over the world, working, um, you're able to do whatever you want to do. Sort of. You know. Okay. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's true. What would you like to be people to say about your legacy? What, mm. what, what do you think is your mark you like to make? That, Not that you may have even made it yet. That they felt better in my presence. That when 
when I came in the room, they felt better about themselves, that they knew that they could do more than they thought when I first walked in, that they learn to give. See, when I die, I want all my friends to take better care of one another and some other folks in my memory. I want them to go, you know what, Bertice used to give me everything. You think this? <laughs> I want people to be better givers. I want them to be better servant leaders. I want them to feel, feel like, you know, everything is possible that they can believe in themselves and they can inspire somebody else to believe in their self. Well, I don't need anything else, but if there's something laying on your heart <laughs> that you would like to make sure that the people's... The people's... Yeah. <laughs> we, I am now working with Hospice Savannah and we have created a story institute. A, amazing woman, Dottie Clutch, created story keepers and there are people who keep the stories of others. Mm. And... My editor says, when a person dies, a library closes, and it's our job to keep that library open. So the Story Institute, um, April 24th through the 26th, we're having a story conference here in Savannah. Some of the most amazing presenters in the world. I called on all the heavyweights, and I said, we ain't paying you because all proceeds are going back to the Story Institute and the story keepers at Hospice Savannah. And they all said yes. Everybody said yes. It was amazing. It's going to be an amazing time. But the first night, the 24th, Stories Under the Stars in Forsyth Park, where people are going to share stories of the loved ones that they lost during the period of COVID. Not necessarily to COVID, but all of us, if we lost someone during that time, it was different. So we'll hear those stories. The symphony will play in between. It's going to be an amazing night. So you can go to instituteforstories.com or savannahinstituteforstories.com and um, find out all about it. If you want to be one of the presenters, you can present. You can fill out a form to present there. Um, it's really going to be wonderful. And, and, I, and I can't wait. It's called Stories Under Stars, A Time to Heal. And then the story conference, companies are sending people from all over to come here for the story conference. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. 